Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is Scott Melnick, AISC Vice President. Scott received his bachelor's and master's degrees from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Known as Chief Storyteller for the Structural Steel Industry, Scott's 22-year vocation at AISC ranges from editing Modern Steel Construction, the nation's leading magazine for structural engineers, to supervising AISC's membership and IT departments, to planning NASCC, the Steel Conference, and other events. This is our podcast interview with Scott Melnick, AISC Vice President and Editor of Modern Steel Construction Magazine. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for talking to me today. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks for inviting me. You were once called brash youth by your boss, an AISC vice president. Now you are an AISC vice president. Were you brash? I don't know if I would use the word brash. Well, probably I would use the word brash. But you have to remember it was a different time. When I started AISC 20 years ago, it was a much sleepier organization. We didn't really try to be proactive. We didn't want change. So, and the average age at AISC was probably pushing 60 or maybe, maybe even more. And when I came in 20 years ago and wanted to change things and, and wanted to, to shake things up a little bit, I probably could have been a little bit more polite about how I went about it. So but I, then it might not have happened. And it wouldn't have been nearly as much fun. <laughs> so do you think you're brash now? Are you still brash? I don't think I've changed that much. What I think is that the people around me have changed. Yeah. And I think the people around me are at least as brash as I am. And if but you look you at our, like that. I do like it. Yeah. If you look at our young staff, whether you're talking about the Solutions Center, or you're talking about our regional engineers, whether you're talking about my departments, we've hired bright young people. And they're all brash. And I think that's a good thing. You once left AISC to work for a public relations marketing firm. What made you come back to AISC after a month in that position? Well, actually, it was only two weeks. It was so <laughs> short a departure that some staff didn't even realize I was gone. They thought I was just on vacation. I think I left AIS. I left AIC very clearly for money. Oh. I was I was made an offer. They actually offered me a signing bonus. How long ago was this? This was. Um, How long had you been here when you left? I, I was here six or seven years. Okay. And I left for two weeks. And it was very flattering to be offered a, a signing bonus. It was like, like a professional baseball player gets. Um, I had never been offered a signing bonus before, and I, I was definitely um, seduced by that dark side. But I th when you look at AISC and you, and you look at what we do, if people ask me, you know, wh why do you, what do you do at AISC? What is AISC? What does it even do? And I need my you know, five-second spiel. My simple answer to what AISC is is where the organization that writes the standard to which all steel buildings in the United States are built. That's a pretty impressive mission. And when you look at what a PR company does, it's just not the same. It's, it's, it's not the same motivation. And you realized that within two weeks that it was... Well, I think I realized that within about three hours. <laughs> but it took two weeks to convince AIC to let me come back. So that kind of leads into the next question. Is that when you realized that AISC was not just your job but your career? You know, I had 10 years of, of experience as a journalist before I came here. And I came here as the editor of Modern Steel Construction magazine. And I think from the day I was here, it was, it was never just a job. It was always a career. 
So you had already, you knew that as soon as you started. Mm -hmm. This is a great question, and, and I, I honestly thought this myself, that a lot of longtime modern steel construction readers are shocked to realize that after years of reading your work that you are not an engineer. How is it that, as a journalist, people tend to assume you are an engineer? Well, for the record, I've never, I've never presented myself as an engineer. Well, no. I've never, I've never made that claim. But apparently, it, it is a, a widespread misconception. Charlie Cotter, our, our vice president and chief structural engineer, sometimes tells a story about one day he was talking to one of um, the leading fabricator engineers in the country, and they were talking about some some technical point. And at some point during the conversation, the the fabricator engineer said, "Let's ask Scott his opinion." And there was a long pause on Charlie's end, and he, and he finally said, well, well, you know Scott's not an engineer, right? And then apparently there was an equally long pause on the <laughs> other end and said, but I always talk to Scott. Did so, he talk to you about technical things? Sometimes people call, and I guess when you've been doing this for so long and you, and you write about it, there's a natural assumption, and, and I have a natural curiosity. Mm -hmm. So I think when people talk to me, I'm not sure they're really looking for answers. I think they're more looking for someone to throw ideas uh, off of mm -hmm. and, and use me as a sounding board. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm, I'm a better listener than my wife thinks I am. <laughs> you must be. <laughs> so how does an ideal topic for your monthly editorial in MSC occur to you? Where do your ideas come from? I think almost everyone knows my ideas simply come from my kids. You know, I've written more than 300 editorials and I have to admit after a while it does become a struggle <laughs> sometimes to come up with a topic. And over the years, the style I've developed is I, I try to relate something going on in the industry to something going on in my personal life. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it kind of personalizes it. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll get someone commenting, you know, I'm kind of tired of hearing about your kids. But I get a lot more responses of, how are your kids? Right. And I, I enjoy, I, I feel like we're part of your family. And that's what I've tried to create with that. Building on that, that your editors note, um, often builds on experiences about your children. What will you write about when they get to an age when they don't want dad to write about them anymore? <laughs> well, my daughter's into theater and dance and loves the stage and the limelight. I can't imagine a time when she, she ever doesn't want to be featured in an editorial. So I don't think I'll ever reach that point. So even if they say, Dad, stop writing about me, does that mean that you will? I'm, I'm not that good a listener. So besides your children, who else inspires you? Well, growing up, the two people who, who I was most inspired by. The first was a, a man named Luther Burbank. And, and you're looking at me quizzically like, who's Luther Burbank? And in reality, you actually know Luther Burbank's work. Um, Luther Burbank was the world's greatest botanist. Oh, okay. That's um, not what I expected you to say. Didn't expect to hear that. He was also the, um, b the city of Burbank in California is actually named after Luther oh. Burbank. All right. Um, the potatoes you eat were actually a strain developed by Luther Burbank. Um, if you, do you like daisies? I do. Do you like Shasta daisies? I don't know that I know the difference. Uh, the most common daisy is actually the Shasta, Shasta daisy. daisy. Okay. Luther Burbank. But what really inspired me about him is not only was he this brilliant botanist, very methodical thinking, very methodical work. If you think about how they developed new strains, they, they took the existing strain and they, they saw variations and they selected the variations and grew them and then selected those variations. And it's, it's a very, very tedious and time-consuming um, and very patient process. But Luther Burbank was also a free thinker. Mm -hmm. In fact, he was a radical free thinker. And if you read his writings, his political and his religious writings, it was 
outrageously brilliant, especially of the time and very relevant today. So what time did he live in? Um, more than 100 years ago. Interesting. Oh. I may have to look him up. You should. And the other person would be Sir David Brewster. Surely you know David Brewster. Should I? No, 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 <laughs> David Brewster either. David Brewster was, um, you, again, you know his work. Uh, do you like lighthouses? Sure. A lot of people are fascinated by lighthouses. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think about the optic system in a lighthouse? No. I mean, you have the beam of light, it's a focused beam. You can be seen for miles and miles. Mm -hmm. You know, wait, how, did that, how did that come about? Sir David Brewster developed the optics. But what he really did that made him much more important, in my mind anyway, I collect kaleidoscopes. Oh. He created the first kaleidoscope. Oh. He was the creator of the kaleidoscope. Well, I could see where that'd be inspired. Yeah. Very inspiring. Yeah. Uh, what was your favorite story in MSC? I think I have four. Four favorite stories. Your eyes lit up, so it I must do, be good. My, my, when people ask me about my favorite stories, I, there, there are always these four that I point at. The first one is the Niles West Field House in Skokie, Illinois. I happen to live in Skokie, but that's not why it's my favorite. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite because it was a brilliant practical solution from an engineering standpoint. The owner's program called for, they wanted to minimize the amount of space in the field house that they would have to heat in the winter. They wanted to min minimize their long-term costs. Well, it's a field house, you know, you have basketball, you have track. Well, the obvious solution is a, a curved roof. Mm -hmm. So you can have a nice low on the perimeter because all you're doing is running a track. In the center where you're playing basketball and things, it's higher. So a curved roof made perfect sense. But when you have long spans, you typically have very deep members. Mm -hmm. Well, those deep members occupy space, which means you have more volume to heat and sometimes cool. Well, that, that's problematic. So the engineering solution was to take that structural system and move it to the outside of the building. And they actually suspended the entire roof structure off of cables. Just a brilliant, brilliant solution. A, it looks cool, but yeah. more importantly, it met the owner's goal economically and for a long term. That is, that's fantastic. The other story, the other project story I love, is almost non-structural in its impact. In fact, it's completely non-structural in its impact. There's a little building called the Shan Morehan Building. It's an insurance company building in Evanston, Illinois. It's about six miles from the Niles Fieldhouse. And it was designed by the firm of Murphy Yan, best known for its lead designer, Helmut Yan. Mm -hmm. But Helmut was not the designer of this building. It was two young architects. It wasn't a particularly significant building. And they were working on it, and they did a nice design. And one day, they were, they were almost done, and they were looking at the design, and something just wasn't right. And they were looking at it, and they were looking at it, and Helmut happened to walk by. And he looked over their shoulder, reached into his pocket, and he pulled out his, his Mont Blanc pen, because what else would Helmut Jan use? Exactly. Um, and he drew a little arch on the top, a little glass arch on the top of the building, nodded, and walked away. And these two guys looked at it and said, oh my God, now the building works. That made the whole building. Well, if you go to, the, to Evanston today, and you go a few blocks away so you can see the entire building, and you look at the building, and you think, wow, it's a nice looking building. But if you take your thumb, and you hold it up so it blocks the view of that little arch, you think, wow, that's a really ugly building. <laughs> that little arch, that little insignificant arch, completely changed the, the look of that building. Yeah. And that was when I learned to appreciate the brilliance of a top designer, that these guys aren't just out there making little flourishes, that they actually are something yeah. incredibly brilliant. Or that little flourish made the whole building. Mm -hmm. um, another story I loved. Have you ever gone to a topping out ceremony? I don't think so. If you go to a topping out ceremony, typically they'll do something like put a Christmas tree on top of a, the last beam they erect or something like oh, that. Oh, no, I haven't. Well, why a Christmas tree? Well, where does that come from? 
I, I don't know. Over the years, we'd get questions, well, why a Christmas tree? And we'd say, I don't know, why Why not? So I, I started asking people. I wrote an entire six or eight page article entitled, Why a Christmas Tree? With all these comments about what, where the custom came from and how it was developed. And we rerun it every once in a while. People loved it. And if you go to Modern Steel Construction Archives, uh, www.modernsteel.com, sure enough, you'll, you can look up that article, look up Why a Christmas Tree, and it's just a lot of fun. So are you not going to tell me? No, you have to read the article. Okay, I probably have at some point, so oh, I'll have to look it up now because now I'm really curious. There you go. Another article, that similar vein, but a little bit different. turns out that most people, when you think, well, I'm going to build a building, the fabricator's going to get some steel. Where does the fabricator get his steel from? And most people go, well, obviously they get it from a mill. Steel mill makes steel, fabricator fabricates it. Seems like a logical connection. Mm -hmm. Turns out, in most cases, that's not true. In most cases, there's a middleman. In most cases, in about 70% of the buildings built in the United States, the majority of the steel comes from a service center, a, a big warehouse, essentially. Same thing if, you, if you're doing some work at your house, you don't call up the uh, sawmill, you go over to Home Depot. Right. But most people don't realize that these service centers exist, and even if they have heard of a service center, they don't realize the amount of value-added work they do. Cut to length, in some cases they'll, they'll even... Um, do some preliminary fabrication work, or well, they don't call it fabrication work because they don't want to compete with their customer base. Sure. So a few years ago, I wrote an article about just what do service centers do, really explaining the process of service centers. And I love when we write articles like that in Modern Steel because, yes, it doesn't help anyone really do their job on a daily basis, which is really what Modern Steel is all about. Mm -hmm. But it gave them insight into the process. Sure. And I think that helps everybody, even if it's not, you know. Sure helping you do your calcs, but mm -hmm. um, you have a long history of announcing things in your editorials, mm -hmm. such as when you announced your impending nuptials. Well, that was a surprise to my and wife. that's how your wife learned about it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Has she forgiven you? You know, she actually tells that story once in a while, so I'm, I'm assuming she's forgiven me, or I'm hoping. Anyway. Can I find that in the archives where you announced that? Yeah, it was 1994, I think, November issue. I'll have to go look that up. The only reason I actually know when it was is for my... Um, 20th anniversary, my staff gave me what was the most touching present I'd ever received. It was um, a bound, hardcover bound collection of all of my editorials for, for 20 years. And in looking through it, I happened to notice that recently. So you hadn't proposed to her yet? She didn't know anything about this and you put it in your editorial? I had proposed on n numerous occasions, <laughs> um, but uh, she had never accepted. And I had this theory that if enough people believe something, it would have to come to pass. Right. And so I announced that we were getting married, and sure enough, we did. And it happened. So if you were going to do something like that today, what would you announce? Well, I don't think I have any big personal things I want to announce. I do have a tendency to let the cat out of the bag, though. <laughs> and if I was announcing something today, I guess what I would talk about is something that's a little bit premature. We haven't told anyone about this. It hasn't even been finalized, oh, so I'm not scoop. sure it's right, right, that it's really going to happen but I'm 90% sure it's going to happen. Uh, Lincoln Electric, the major welding uh, supplier in the country, mm -hmm. to help train welders, they've developed this uh, welding simulator. It's this really cool thing. You actually put a helmet on, and you have this welding equipment, and as you move around, you're seeing the welding equipment move with you, and you're, it's as it's, it's close as you can come to experiencing welding without a, without a flame. And we think they're going to bring it to the steel conference, which is, which is good because when we actually let people play with welding tools in the, in the exhibit hall, uh -huh. the fire marshal gets a little upset. <laughs> um, so this, this will allow 
every attendee at the conference to truly experience welding. But to make it more fun, it turns out that this, this welding simulator actually scores you on your welding. Oh, so you get great. We actually get a numerical score. And you know we can post the top scores and give prizes. So I think we'll run a little competition on, on who, the, who the top welder at the steel conference is this so year. So this is going to be this year? Oh, yeah. We're, talk in May we're in talking Pittsburgh. about May in Pittsburgh. We're talking wow, you know, beginning May 11th at you know, 3 p.m. when the exhibit hall opens. You know, hop over to Lincoln's booth and play with their welding That's equipment. exciting. Well, a few years ago, we did something similar with a, a crane simulator. That was kind of cool, too. You sat mm -hmm. in this chair, and actually, the chair, it was like a ride. Its chair tilted, and I kept driving the crane off a cliff, apparently, <laughs> tipping it over. So I'm really excited about the welding equipment this year. So let's talk about NASCC, the North American Steel Construction Conference. Uh, it's in Pittsburgh mm -hmm. in May, May 11th through the 14th. 14th. Mm -hmm. You're a big driving force behind the planning goes into NASCC every year. So can you tell us a little bit about the planning and the technical program and how that all comes together? Sure. We're a little bit different than most conferences. The, the way a, a traditional conference works is about a year out, you put out a call for papers and um, people submit abstracts, professors, and you review the abstracts and you select the best ones and you then you invite the professor to give his paper at the conference and often there are these series of hundreds of 20-minute presentations that really don't help you a whole lot, but it's, it's a conference. Mm -hmm. We turn the whole concept on its head, and what we do is we have a planning committee, and the planning committee is very representative of the entire industry. So we have engineers, we have fabricators, we have detailers, we have erectors, uh, we even have some professors, but it's driven by the people who are actually working every day on design and construction of steel buildings. The committee gets together and we say, what are the things that people need, want to know about? What are the topics that will help them do their job when they get back to the office the next day? And we come up with this list of topics. And then we say, okay, here's a topic. Who's the best speaker? Who's an expert on it? Who can also present material? And then we go to that person and we say, hi, we'd like you to give a presentation on this topic. So we've turned the concept around. So we're not just getting academic papers. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is we're getting practical, experienced professionals to discuss how to do practical things. Practical things, exactly. I think the process must work because the topics are always so interesting and there's always so many of them, so many <laughs> things to choose from. Usually you can't choose. There, every, there's so many things at the same time that it's well, hard to choose which ones to even go to. One of the biggest complaints we get about the conference is I, I couldn't go to all the sessions I wanted to go to. Exactly. And I, I, I much prefer that than hearing people say, well, what, what was I going to do all day? And it's great. People can get tw up to 28 PDHs at the conference, mm -hmm. and our topics run the full gamut. There's really something for everyone, and you can really get a list at plugging our website, www.aisc.org slash NASCC, take you that full data stream on uh, the Steel Conference this year. So who's giving the keynote lecture at the conference this year? Well, this year we're in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And have you ever been to Pittsburgh? I have. Have you been there recently? Yes. I was isn't, there it, isn't it nice? It is. It's a very nice city. When we were in Pittsburgh in 1994, uh, we had a rather abysmal attendance. And Pittsburgh was kind of not that nice back then. It had really slipped. It was, it was one of our great industrial cities. And then it had decayed like a lot of our, our northern industrial cities. Mm -hmm. It's really turned itself around. Mm -hmm. When I look at Pittsburgh today, I was up on top of um, the incline and looking down. And my god, the city was beautiful. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, there's a lot of cultural attractions there. If you look at a lot of the Carnegie stuff, the museums are, are top notch. The restaurants are surprisingly good. I actually had some of the best um, 
tuna I, I've ever had anywhere. It in was Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. Who, who would have thought who would, it? Who would have thought? Um, <laughs> so the city itself is really different than it used to be. And we're bringing in a guy named uh, David Vader. And he's with the Pittsburgh History and Landmarks Foundation. And what he's going to do is give us a presentation on the, the history of the built environment in Pittsburgh. So he's going to be talking about about the mills, he's going to be talking about the significant um, buildings, he's going to be talking about the amazing bridges in Pittsburgh, and give us an overview of why the structures were built, for what purpose, how they were built, and give us an overview of the city, really. And then, of course, on Friday, we'll have our second keynote, which is our T.R. Higgins lecture. The T.R. Higgins lecture is, is an annual lectureship where the top paper for the year is basically presented. And that actually becomes often the basis of eight or ten lectures we then give around the country. And this year's Higgins lecture is by Chuck Roeder from the University of Washington. And he's talking about gusset plate connections for seismic design. And even though we're in Pittsburgh and a little bit further east, it's always amazing to me how much interest there is in seismic. Oh, yeah. Because people come from all over the country. Sure. And, and well, people design all over the country. People design all over the country. Yeah. We typically will have ten or twelve sessions on, on various aspects of seismic design. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the most popular sessions we run. So you talked about your attendance in 1994 in, in Pittsburgh. Hmm. So this year, we're expecting about 4,000 attendees? Um, some, somewhere in that neighborhood. So how did you lead that progression from the, the 400 we had 400 in 400 to 4,000? Well, we haven't quite hit 4,000, but you know, it's a goal. Maybe we will this year. Maybe. It wasn't just me. Again, you know, I talked about the committee a little bit. We had phenomenal leadership, starting with Frank Davis, continuing with Jim Story, and and now with Terry Zwick. Mm-hmm. I also have a fabulous meeting staff. If you talk to people like Katie Preston and Elizabeth Robillet, I mean, they do all the detail work yeah, for the conference. Yeah, they do such a great job. And so it's really a team effort, it's similar to a lot of the programs we do at AISC. I'm not sure if there's that many things you can point to one individual and say, well, they did it. Right. And if it was just one person, it probably wouldn't be that fantastic. No. You need a great team. You do, and I'm fortunate I have one. So if somebody's looking to go to just one conference this year, why should they go to this conference? We provide practical information. Whether you're an engineer, a fabricator, or anyone else involved in the design or construction of of steel buildings and bridges, we're the leading conference to provide practical, useful information. In addition to the 90-some-odd technical sessions that we run, and I think everyone regrets not being able to see all of them. If you really want to get a feel, by the way, for what our technical sessions look like, uh, go to to this website, uh, www, what a coincidence, uh, .aisc.org slash 2010NASCC online. And what you'll find on that website are recorded sessions from last year. We go to slash 2009 NASCC online and see some sessions from 2009. Mm-hmm. And you'll see about 40 sessions, and you'll see the PowerPoint presentations, and, the sp- and you can listen to the speakers. They're synced with their PowerPoint presentations. And you get a real feel for the type of information we present and how we present it. And I think if you listen to a couple of those, uh, you'll be booking your ticket for Pittsburgh. We also have a huge exhibit hall. Yes. We'll have about 200 exhibitors. And the fun part about that, if you've never been to a fabrication shop, yeah, you have to come to Pittsburgh. It's, it's phenomenal. You'll get a company like Peddinghouse, and they'll set up a 40 by 90 foot booth, and they'll be running a beam line in it. Mm-hmm. They'll be cutting steel right on the floor. You'll get to see the equipment that's being used. And it's not just Peddinghouse. There's nine or ten major equipment manufacturers with their equipment running. If you're a designer and you want to know what's going on 
with your software, you know, you stop by uh, the Bentley booth and talk to them about RAM right now and find out what innovations they're coming out with. What's not just the state of the art today, but what's the state of the art tomorrow? And if you have questions about your software, of course, they're the people who can answer it. Mm -hmm. um, if you need questions about bolts, you need questions about welding, paint, whatever you're looking for information on, there are exhibitors dealing with it there. You know, a lot of people, a lot of designers have questions about bending and rolling of steel. Mm -hmm because we're, we're seeing a lot more curved shapes. The leading bender rollers are all there. The joist manufacturers are there. Uh, the mills are there. You know, you have 200 booths, 200 uh, companies sitting there with all the experts waiting for you to talk to you. And then, my favorite part about the conference, what I find most valuable at the conference, is the other attendees. Mm -hmm. I can remember my first steel conference back in 1990, and I, I actually, I was dating my future wife at the time, and after the first night, she, I called her and I was all excited. I said, my God, this is so much fun. You'll never guess who I met. And she said, what, what, you meet Ted Columbus or something? I said, well, well yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it was funny because then back uh, a few years later, back in uh, 96, 96 or 98, 98, we were in New Orleans and my wife, she was then my wife finally, and she came with me to the conference. And we were at the conference dinner and happened to be at the aquarium. And there across the room is, is Ted Columbus. So I said, oh, you have to meet, meet this man, because of course knew who he was from all my stories. Mm -hmm. And we walked across the room and I said, uh, Professor Columbus, I want you to meet my, my wife, Judy. And my wife looked at him and said, I know who you are. You're the father of LRFD. <laughs> of course, Ted responded, but there is no mother. And you know, just the, the opportunity to talk to people like Ted Columbus or sit around at night over, over a few drinks and listen to people like Jim Fisher and Mike West two of the top industrial designers in the country sit there and tell stories about the real nitty-gritty about building design or the chance to talk to Larry Griffiths, you know, the guru of wind design. You, know, you get these top people. You might run into Dwayne Miller with this fantastic welding we simulator. We always see Dwayne Miller. In the Lincoln Electric um, booth. Or go to his lecture. Dwayne gives a lecture on welding for us every year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dwayne is the demigod of welding. Yes, he is. Someday he'll elevate to the god, but Homer's still around. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, you've been at AISC for over 20 years. What's your most memorable experience? I guess that could be good or bad. <laughs> you know, I think, I think your experiences are, are really all about people. Mm -hmm. And I've really been blessed to work with some, some absolutely wonderful people. You know, it, it starts with people like Charlie Carter. Everyone knows Charlie. And, uh, you know, he's, I'm happy to say he's been a friend of mine now for 19 years. And it's, it's great to, you know, one of our newest vice presidents, Jacques Cartin, who had left AIC for 10 years. It's wonderful to have him back. But when I, when I tr get a chance to travel with my staff, when I can travel with people like my, my membership director, um, Carly Hurd, or Katie Preston, who we mentioned from meetings department, these are just wonderful people. And my memories are the time we spend together and the time that we get to interact. I think that's really what our members are all about. I would say that's true anywhere you work. That's always, if you like it, that's why it's because of the people that you're surrounded by. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because of what you're doing every day, but in what ways is AISC of today different than AISC of the day you were hired? And you kind of talked about that earlier with the, um, that you were the brash young youth and the, the age, median age was a lot older. I think we're all brash now. We've really turned into a progressive organization. If you look at things like the Solution Center, that's just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. The whole concept that we can 
at no charge to the industry. Answer technical questions. Do conceptual solutions. If you look at the changes that went on with Modern Steel Construction Magazine, or the changes with the Steel Conference, or you look at Steel Day. What a wonderful idea, Steel Day, where we, we open up fabrication shops and mills and, and galvanizers and, and people come and they get to tour, they get to hear, they get lunch. <laughs> um, always an important factor of any tour. Just a, a wonderful opportunity, not just to see things, but to talk to people. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're talking about both networking and education. What a wonderful idea, and we would have done that 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We would have been afraid of losing control. Now we're willing to open everything up. Look at some of the changes. Um, you know, again, I probably shouldn't talk about this because it hasn't been announced. <laughs> For years, people have been asking when, I love the manual, the manual's, you know, the Bible in it, of the industry, but I'd love an electronic copy of it. I'd love it on my laptop. I, I don't, I don't want to go out in the field and carry a, what's the manual, up to 12 pounds or something now, <laughs> uh, book around. I'm already carrying my laptop. Why do I have to carry something else? And with the 14th edition, which is coming out this summer, there's a, a very, very good chance that it'll be available electronically as well as in, as in a printed copy. Excellent. Now, that's not something we've publicly announced. Now you have. Well, <laughs> and, and again, that's not a definite thing either. But there's a good chance that that's what we'll be doing. But a change like that, we, we wouldn't have made years and years ago. I think people are going to be really excited about that. Well, you shouldn't give me a microphone. <laughs> well, maybe now that you've actually said it and it's gone out there, now, now you'll have to make sure that it's a reality. Well, and you get people, again, the, the changes are, one of the vice presidents, when, when I started, commented to Charlie and I, we, we started a couple years apart, but looked at us and said, in my day, you two would never have made it out of the mailroom. <laughs> well, we did. We made it out of the mailroom. We, we did. We, we made it to the, to the boardroom. When you look at people like Charlie, who come from a completely different generation than the retired steel people who used to work here, and so ideas like electronic manuals don't scare him, they excite him. I think it'll excite everybody. Uh, is it true that you um, tried to relocate AISC to Toronto and Skokie? <laughs> Well, my wife's actually from Toronto, and, you know, given the dr- how long the drive is, it would have been very convenient for me if, if we were up there. And Skokie was actually an interesting concept. PCA, Portland Cement Association, is headquartered in, in Skokie, mm-hmm. and we just thought it would be convenient for people if we were both there. Plus, I happen to live you in Skokie, to live there, yeah, and okay. it would have been very convenient for me. I would guess you probably got a lot of uh, pushback on those ideas. Well, they didn't seem that popular. You're called the chief storyteller at AISC, which I guess seems obvious why, just based on the stories you've told us today, but did somebody give you that title? Where'd that come from? It's almost in my job description. Yeah. So, actually, if you look at my door, that's actually what it says on my my door. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, most people have less descriptive titles. (laughs) Um, Although we do call, for example, the person in charge of our website, our web overlord. So yes, we, we, do. we do have a few good titles. We do. So did somebody give you the title or did you just... Seize it. Seize it. That's a good way to put it, yeah. I can't remember whether uh, Charlie Carter or John Cross gave me that title. John is our vice president um, who deals with our marketing issues. Well, it's very um, fitting. Thank you. Uh, if you were ever to let a guest editor write the editor's note in MSC, who would you consider? Well, that's a tough one. I would let my daughter write it, and not just because she's my daughter, and not just because it might be interesting to have a 14-year-old um, guest editor, mm-hmm. but she's actually a better writer than I am. <laughs> it's kind of intimidating to me sometimes. Um, I probably have more technical proficiency, Sure. Uh, but 
if you read her writing, uh, her use of voice and her, her use of, of um, dialogue is far superior than what I do. In fact, I have a piece in my office that she wrote about two years ago, and every once in a while someone will be reading it, and they'll say, oh, did you write this? <laughs> and I'll say, uh, no, my, my daughter did. And they said, oh, it's, it's better than usual writing. So maybe you'll consider that. Maybe you'll let her write your next... Uh... Or maybe I have and just haven't told anyone. Oh, maybe that is what you're doing. All right. Do you think that she's going to be a writer? Is that what she wants to be? She wants to be a teacher. Uh, ever since she was four or five years old, she's always said she wants to be a teacher. She still says that. Um, I've seen her work with kids, and, and she's great with it. When she, um, she dances 12 and a half hours a week, and one of, the, one of her dance teachers has her working with these little tiny tot tappers. And from what her teacher says, she's just amazing with these little kids. And it's so much fun when I see some of these little kids walking along. And a bunch of these little kids will come up all excited to my daughter and, Hi, Miss Julia. Hi, Miss Julia. It's kind of fun. <laughs> uh, you have a reputation for being in everyone's business at AISC. And yet everybody seems to trust you. Was that a hard situation to develop? I might just be I'm old. Um, You've just been around forever. <laughs> but at AIC, if you think about our two major groups, we have a large group of technical folks, of these engineers, who are out there writing the manuals and our design guides and, and working on, on that type of stuff. And then we have this other group, um, marketing business development people who are out there in the field who are promoting the use of fabricated structural steel. So you have these two groups, but then you have all that other stuff that fits in the middle. You have publications and you have uh, membership and IT and all these other little things. And that's the stuff that feels, falls into my area. So really, my group is a service group, so we have to get involved in what everyone else does. Or at least that's my rationalization. <laughs> that's a pretty good story. And I'm sticking to it. Uh, when you reflect on all your accomplishments here at AISC, uh, what makes you the most proud? I think I'm most proud of some of the young staff who I've hired who have really blossomed. I had to point at one person as an example. I would probably point at Carly Hurd. Carly came to us as a membership assistant, entry-level job right out of school, and really, really quickly rose up to be in charge of that department. And I would like to take some credit for that. I probably can't. It's probably 98% due to her passion and due to her abilities. But I'm hoping at least 2% of that is, is the, the work I've done with her. Mm -hmm. And if you look at how outstanding she is, and you look at how successful she is, if, if I had a point at one thing that I'm most proud of, it's people like Carly. Uh, is there anything you wish you could have done differently? I guess I wish I was more patient. Um, if I, if I, I tend to think I know where things are going, mm -hmm. and I'm often impatient with the process of that we need to go through to get to that point. I always think, well, we know where we're going, can't we just go? Well, but maybe that gets you there, whereas if you were just waiting around, maybe maybe things wouldn't happen. Or maybe I'm just too brash. <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Is it true that you're responsible for AISC's casual dress policy? When I started AISC, we were a suit office. Wow. And one day, I'd been here a couple of years, and one day I came in wearing a sport coat. <laughs> you know, sport coat, a dress shirt, tie. One of the vice presidents, in fact, the vice president whose job I now have, looked at me and said, it's traditional that your coat and slacks be cut from the same cloth. And I went home and I thought about that. It seemed like good advice. And the next day I came to the office without a jacket. And after that, no one said anything because they were worried about what I'd do next. <clears throat> it took me about a decade to get, get rid of the ties completely. But now, now it's a much more comfortable office to work in. So you are responsible for it. Maybe my greatest achievement 
Oh, that's what you could be most proud of. There we go. Is a messy desk the sign of a true genius? I'm not smart enough to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we can interpret that however we like. There you go. You talked about who inspired you. Um, who's been the most influential person in your professional career? You know, I never told this person this, and, and he died in '02. But Ira Cole. Ira Cole, when I was in journalism school, he was the dean of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. And when I was in grad school, actually, our master's thesis was the development of a, a business magazine. And in this case, it was a cold fitness business. It was a magazine for um, owners of health clubs, which were really burgeoning back then. And I wrote an article for this prototype magazine uh, where I interviewed a guy named Dick White. Dick White was a former Detroit Lion football player. And he was running a workout program at a health club in downtown Chicago for middle-aged men. It was like a boot camp. It would start at 6 in the morning. It was like from 6 to 7 a.m. before work workout. And it was this killer workout. I mean, he, he, was, he, he yelled at them and he really got them going and worked them hard. And you know, I went through the program and wrote this comical article. And before the prototype came out, and without ever having seen it, we got a call from his lawyer. And the lawyer said, if this article sees the light of day, we're going to sue. They had no idea what was really in it. But they realized that Dick could have come across and not in the best light. As it turned out, in the article, I, I personally think that he came out really well. Mm -hmm. But they, they threatened a lawsuit. And we were debating what to do. Because these prototypes were things we actually tried selling and things. And did we want a lawsuit attached to a potential sale property? And we were, we were debating it. And Ira Cole, dean of the School of Journalism, walked, was walking by the room and he poked his head in. He said, well, I hear we have a lawsuit problem. And we all thought, well, that, that kind of answers the question about what we're going to do, isn't it? And he smiled and he said, that's why we have lawyers. <laughs> and he walked out. And that's when I realized that in my profession, we actually have to do what we want to do, what we think is right, mm -hmm. not what's expedient. You yeah. do what's right, not what's expedient. I've tried to use that lesson in my whole entire career. Mm -hmm. And if I had to point at one person who taught that lesson really well, it was that one comment from Dean Cole. Yeah. And not at all what you expected him to say. No, not at all. Not, but not the safe thing. Definitely not. Well, I guess that's really important when you're a journalist. I think it's important no matter what field you're in. Yeah. Exactly, but I guess... I would hope every problem. designer in the country would, would, would feel the same way. Yes, we do have that responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you graduated with your journalism degree, did you picture yourself working with construction, with the construction industry and with engineers? I think I ended up in a place that was obvious from birth. I was born in New York City, and back then, your birth certificate not just didn't just list your parents' names and birth dates, they actually listed the field in which your parents worked. And under my father's name, when it listed field, it had one word after the colon, steel. It was inevitable I'd come here. My father was a, sub, a subcontractor in uh, doors, frames, and hardware, and he worked with metal doors and frames. Well, there you go. You're right. It's fate. Mm -hmm. So we talked about um, what you were most proud of at AISC. So what's the worst idea you've ever had? Years ago, we uh, worked on publishing magazines and other things for other companies. And we, uh, we were publishing a, a trade magazine, a construct, uh, um, engineering magazine, actually, for another association. And I think the worst idea I've had was that we should do it my way. My vision for the magazine was similar to the vision we have with Modern Steel and similar to the vision we have with the Steel Conference, that we want to present good, useful, practical information. And that wasn't necessarily the direction that their editorial board wanted to go in. They really wanted to present 
information on specific subjects that they themselves were interested in, not necessarily what their readers were interested in. We fought and fought and fought for about two years. And I'm not sure if I handled the situation as well as I could have. Does that maybe come back to your patients? Maybe. Maybe. Not my strong suit. Do you think that social media is important in the steel industry? I wish it was more important. If you look at something like Steel Tools, ASC has a website called Steel Tools. Again, www.steeltools.com. And if you look at Steel Tools, it's a wonderful, wonderful site where people go and share uh, utility programs that they've written. Everyone has these little routines they've written to automate different things, and hundreds of people have shared their, their uh, spreadsheets and other, other software programs they've written on this site. Thousands of times some of these have been downloaded. And for that type of technical sharing, social networking works for the steel industry. But the other half of that site is actually devoted to kind of a, a Facebook of the steel industry. And if you look at that portion, no one uses it. Uh, wildly underused. And if you look at AIC's LinkedIn site, we have something like 10 or 20,000 um, members of our site, but almost no conversation. Mm -hmm. If you looked at our Facebook page or our Twitter feeds, not that much response. So we're playing with social networking, but I'm not sure that designers and steel industry professionals are really that excited by social media. Do you think that that'll just change as, as time goes on, just as it becomes more and more the, the norm in society? Maybe. Um, we're running, we're thinking about running a test at NASCC. Uh, we're thinking about creating an app, and if we do, because we've actually surveyed and found out that our attendees at NASCC are pretty much divided between Blackberries, uh, iPhones, and Android devices. Almost dead even, one-third, one-third, one-third. Mm -hmm. But if you, you look at that, and if we develop an app, one component of the app will enable social networking amongst the attendees. And while we won't be able to view the actual communication between two attendees, we'll know if people are actually utilizing that feature. So we're going to try and do this at this It's this If we can work it out. Um, we're in final negotiations, and if it works, well, we're, hopefully we'll have it. Oops, I spilled the beans again. <laughs> We're getting all kinds of great scoops in this podcast. I'm not real good at keeping secrets. So speaking of social media, <clears throat> your LinkedIn profile says that you'd like to create a controversial website. Hmm. What would it be called and what would the topic be? Well, if I was creating a website, I'd create one called Law 18. Law? Law 18. Law 18. Uh, doesn't mean anything to you, does it? Mm-mm. You, have you ever played soccer? No, I if haven't. You, if you play soccer and um, there are 17 laws. Okay of the game. Just 17, that's it. You know, if you go to other games, you look at how many rules there are in football or baseball. I mean, there are gargantuan books. Mm -hmm. But if you look at soccer, there's only 17 laws. Except if you're a soccer referee, you'll often talk about Law 18. It's never written down. Law 18 is use common sense. Oh. <laughs> and that's what my website would be all about. Because if you look at so many issues that we face as a society, whether they're political issues, economic issues, um, where everyone has these extreme views, if we just applied a little bit of common sense, maybe we, we put an engineer in Congress instead of a lawyer, maybe we'd have so much better society. So any plans to actually do that? Maybe when, my, when I'm not spending hours every day driving my kids to their activities. Oh, uh, speaking of soccer, um, can you explain offsides in soccer? I, I can explain offside. Um, and I've done this, actually. Um, a few years ago, I was at a Structures Congress, and I happened to be at a AIC booth, and I'm standing there, and an engineer walked up to me and said, can you explain offside? I thought, well, that's kind of an 
arbitrary question, but sure. And I pulled out a piece of paper, drew a soccer field, explained offside. There's really only three things to know about offside. To, to be in offside position, you have to be in the opponent's half of the field. You have to be in front of the ball, closer to the ball, closer to the opponent's goal. Um, so in front of the ball. Mm -hmm. And you, there has to be fewer than two defenders between you and the goal. Okay. And the keeper is usually one of those defenders. Not always, but usually. Um, that's it, three conditions for offside. And then you have to become involved in, in play. And once you become involved in play, you're whistled for offside. Simple. And I explained that, and I showed it, showed a few situations. <clears throat> and he nodded and walked away. And a little while later, another engineer came up to me and said, can you explain offside? I was like, okay. Well, after this happened three or four times, you know, once is odd, twice is a coincidence, but five, six, eight, 12 times, it dawned on me, I had mentioned offside in an editorial last month, and it all made sense. So they really did want to know about offside. They really did. Apparently, it was okay. one of the more popular things I talked about in an editorial. Ironically, I, I think I actually received um, one or two votes for best presentation at the conference. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the Green Movement? Law 18. <laughs> I think you need to apply a little common sense. I think the Green Movement really has to be economically driven, and a lot of the Green Movement makes perfect sense from that standpoint. What's, it, what's its impact on society? What's its impact on costs? Something like energy conservation is an obvious. Why wouldn't you build a structure to minimize energy use? You know, how stupid are we that we would just waste energy? Well, I want to build a structure that's really expensive to operate. <laughs> um, why would you want to waste resources? Some of it seems overly politically driven. And the, the political aspects of the green movement are abhorrent. But if we apply common sense, it, it'll, it'll be wonderful. I'm hesitant on the green movement as it applies to the steel industry from the structural standpoint. I'm not really sure how much impact um, the green movement really has on any material. Yeah, I can talk to you about all the, the great green advantages of steel. Because there are I, a lot I, of them. There are a lot of them. <laughs> um, you know, everyone knows about our recycled content. What are we at, 93%? Everyone knows that we've reduced, on the mill side, energy consumption, greenhouse gas emission by 30 or 40 percent over the last 10, 15 years. So we've made huge strides. You know, we're a closed loop for water usage. We've made great strides over time. When you go to a steel mill today, you know, you're not going to see, you know, the belching gases coming out. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, I'm not sure I want one in my backyard just because of the amount of space it'll take. Sure. But Frankly, steel mills are good neighbors now. It's not like in the old days. Do you, do you remember, you might be a little young, but there was a movie Flashdance. <laughs> yes, remember I remember Flashdance. Flash okay. Of course, I was in junior high. Okay. Flashdance, you had Jennifer Beals. She's out there dancing. She was a welder. She's she was a, a dancer. Mm -hmm. I can't figure out why there was this welder with her own room in a steel mill. <laughs> um, but, you know, there she was. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the steel mill back then, it was dirty. It was full of people. It took 11 or 12 hours to produce, man hours, to, or woman hours, I guess, to produce a ton of steel. If you, if you go down to Blytheville to New Yamato's mill down in Blytheville, Arkansas today, and you walk through the mill, what you'll notice is there are no people. It's automated. It's clean. It's clean. You know, you, it only takes, what, 0.6 man hours to make a ton of steel today? Um, it's a completely different industry. I hear that you're going to write a novel. What's I it going to be about? <laughs> Well, I'm torn between writing a, a science fiction novel exploring the consequences of individual actions and, and do diametrically opposed op actions have similar results, 
or just an expose of AISC and focusing on Charlie Carter. So just kind of a juicy um, expose. All those interesting stories that I've been collecting for 20 years. I think you should do both. It would just be one. You could, you could combine it somehow. Mm -hmm. Some kind of a science fiction uh, story about Charlie. Some kind of story anyway. Um, so you mentioned that you went to Northwestern. Is purple the new black? <laughs> you know, there was a time in Modern Steel where I tried to do as much a purple tints and text and until my staff revolted. <laughs> um, and now if you look at the pages of Modern Steel, the only uh, residual is if you look at my uh, picture in the editorial page, I'm wearing a purple shirt and tie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was the only way I could slip it in subtly. I think that's all my questions for today. That's all your questions? That's all my questions. Wow. Well, I really appreciate um, you're having me. Well, today. thank you for talking to us. You've been a fabulous storyteller today. Thank you. You're welcome. Anytime. Come back and visit. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I will. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Join us for next month's episode when we'll be discussing the National Student Steel Bridge Competition, featuring an interview with Frank Hatfield, chairman of the competition's rules committee. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.